that uh, Be Thou My Vision is one of my favorite hymns. Um, not just for the words that are very powerful, but um, I think what resonates with me as a historian is it's probably the oldest hymn in our hymnal. Um, dates to somewhere around 600 AD uh, in Ireland. Um, and if you look in your hymnal, it says ancient Irish. <laughs> uh, ancient, I guess, is 600 AD um, in that particular context. But um, just the fact that that's a song that believers have been singing for 1,400 years. Basically the same melody. Obviously the words had to be translated from the, the old Irish to English, but um, there, there's power in that, I think. There's consistency, there's stability, there's a reality of the kingdom very much present uh, in those words and in that melody. And so uh, today, uh, as we come to our time in the Word, um, we're going to talk about the kingdom. And we've been talking about the king and how he has been demonstrated in a variety of ways. Uh, as the word has unfolded, uh, we've seen the gracious king, the timely king, the wrathful king, the creative king. We've seen God in his various expressions and works interacting with Israel. Now as we move into the New Testament, interacting with the church. And we've seen the king come uh, in the, the birth narrative of last week. And uh, just the story of, of his, his genealogy and how he comes to, to change the world, to minister to his people, and his people being every tribe, every tongue, every nation. So today we want to look just a little bit at the kingdom of that king, what he understands it to be, what he um, uh, carries out, what he desires in his kingdom. And Jesus, uh, in his life and ministry, basically um, explained uh, his kingdom two ways. He explained it using parables, and he explained it, obviously, through his life, through his words, through his interactions with his disciples. And we want to look at those two uh, realities this morning, the parables and the life of Jesus. And we want to start that by looking in Matthew chapter 13, um, you'll turn there because the words uh, that are up there, uh, you're probably not able to see them out where you're at. Um, I realized that as I was putting that up, that those are little, <laughs> okay? Now, uh, Tom told me he could see it. He had no problem seeing it back there. So, Tom, you, you're, you're on board. You can just go right off the screen. You're good to go. But the rest of you who, who might struggle with that, open your Bibles up to Matthew 13. And uh, that's where we're going to be looking uh, this morning as Jesus kind of explains um, why he used parables. What was his motivation? And so beginning in verse 10, it says, Then the disciples came up and asked him, Why are you speaking to them in parables? And he answered, Because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them. For whoever has more will be given to him, and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have, even what he has, 
will be taken away uh, from him. That is why I speak to them in parables. Because looking, they do not see. And hearing, they do not listen or understand. Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in them, which says, You will listen and listen, but never understand. You will look and look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn back, and I would heal them. Blessed are your eyes, because they do see, and your ears, because they do hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see the things you see, but didn't see them. To hear the things you hear, but didn't hear them. And so Jesus here tells us, he, he gives us some, some rationales for why he spoke in parables. And the first thing he tells us is he spoke in parables to conceal the truth from those who were listening. Now that may seem troubling to us. We may hear that and say, wait a minute, didn't Jesus come to reveal the Father? Didn't Jesus come to, to reveal the truth? Didn't Jesus come to, to, to win those who are lost and, and those certain things? And yes, he, he came for all those reasons. He came to uh, define and to explain and to communicate who the Father is and, and who he is. But he tells us here that, that the reason he speaks the way he speaks is because it's a matter of our hearts. Are we open to the message that he wants to share? If he told us plainly, it might be easy for us to... Um, lie. Say, yeah, yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I'm, I'm on board. I'm, I want to be part of this kingdom. I want to be part of that reality. I want to be part of this, this situation. But by telling the parables, he, he's, he's challenging us. He, he's asking us, where is our heart? Where is our, our mindset? And he tells us that the, the second reason that goes right along with that is because their hearts were hardened by sin. Because of their mindset, because their hearts had become so hardened by sin, parables served to distinguish, to differentiate. They, they, they served to, to weed out, as it were, those who are pretenders. Those who act like they are part of the kingdom, those who are the pious ones who walk around and say, look at me and all the great things I do for God, but who really don't understand the mind of God, the heart of God. It's a way of filtering. It's a way of inviting, in a sense, because the third reason he says is to, to challenge the crowds to think allowing them to respond when they're ready. When these parables really start to make sense to you, when they really start to hit home to you, when they really start to resonate with you, then you know, right, I'm in the midst of this. I understand the one. I understand the, the, the one who's talking to me, the one who's, who's telling me these things. I've had teachers and professors over the years who... Um, Let's just say we're enigmatic. They, they, they weren't very clear, at least at the start of class. 
But there were times in, in those journeys, not always, sometimes they remain a puzzle throughout the semester, but there were times in those journeys where I started to see their methodology. I started to understand how they were saying things just a little bit different for a reason. They were, they were expressing things and they were, they were explaining things in, in a way that wasn't common for a reason. And I started to identify with them, and, and I'd leave class, and I'd say, wasn't that a great class? And, you know, some of my classmates were like, yeah, that was great. And others were like, I didn't understand a single thing that was going on there. I think that's kind of the situation with Jesus in the parables. As he's telling these parables, there's some in the crowd that are like, I get it. I see what you mean there. I, I understand the, the, the image, the comparison you're making. And I think others were like, I didn't understand a single thing. Why is he telling this story? That's a weird story. And it's a way of distinguishing. It's a way of helping us identify where we're at in the journey and how well we understand the one who's talking to us. So let's, let's dig just a little bit into the parables. And, and I've talked to the parables before, and, and we, we, we've encountered some of them before. I just want to remind you of the two basic rules for interpreting parables whenever you're looking at these in the text and trying to understand exactly what Jesus is saying and what it is that, that he's trying to get across. The, the first rule is that you need to ask or identify whose Jesus' audience is and how they would have heard what he's saying. Okay, A lot of times when we read the parables especially, we say, oh, he's talking to me. And that's how we read it. And we end up completely misrepresenting what's going on in the text there. We, we end up completely going in a different direction than Jesus intended us to go. Um, if, if the parable says he's talking to his disciples, then, then we're going to have something a little bit more in common with them. But sometimes it says what? He spoke to the Pharisees saying. He's specifically telling the, the, the story, the parable to the Pharisees. So for instance... And I don't want to get too much off on this issue. But, for instance, uh, you have three parables that are, that are told together that I think are probably the most misunderstood, misrepresented parables in, uh, that Jesus told. It's the parable of the, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and we call him the prodigal son or the lost son. And a lot of times when you see people look at those parables, they say, well, that, 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 that parables, you know, it's about God his nature and his love for us. But who is he talking to when he tells those three parables? He's addressing Pharisees who have just asked, why are you hanging out with these sinners? Why are you hanging out with these people who, who um, clearly don't understand or, or, or know God? And Jesus starts each one of those parables by, by talking, by giving an illustration of how they would normally respond to a situation, but yet they're not responding to the loss that way. So, for instance, the sheep. He talks about the 99 to 1. How does he start that parable? He says, who among you wouldn't leave the 99 to go get the 1? In other words, he's saying what? Every single one of you in this room, every Pharisee here, you had sheep. You had 100 of them. One went lost. Every single one of you would leave the 99, to go get the one. And yet, when it comes to a lost person, you won't show that kind of love. You're safe and you're comfortable with your group. 
your insiders. You won't go find them. And he uses God's love indeed to, to contrast our lack of love. But the purpose of those parables is what? It's to encourage us to be more loving. We'll come back to that more in a minute. So ask who he's speaking to. Secondly, finish the parable. A lot of times when we're reading parables and, and we're interpreting them, we get to the point that maybe we identify with or, or we like or that hits us the hardest and we stop. And Jesus keeps on telling the parable and, and we're almost like, yeah, I know that's there, but that's not important. You know, the prodigal son, again, is a, is a, is a clear picture of that. Most of us stop the story of the prodigal son with, my son is home, let's throw a party. That's where we stop. But for Jesus, that parable goes on to what? To have that exchange between the son who stayed and the father. And we just leave that out. We just ignore that. Oh, yeah, that's there too. And yeah, there's probably some points there, but we, we don't we don't see that. And yet that's the climax of the story. That that's that's the point where Jesus has been heading the whole time. And so it's important when we read the parables to, to read them all. Now even if we do that, even if we correctly interpret the parables, it is possible to hear the truth, to even kind of know the truth or believe the truth, and then ignore the truth. It's possible to do that. Okay? Um, and let, let me do, for instance, okay, we know, I think everybody in this room knows that smoking is not good for I don't think there's anybody here and say, yeah, smoking's great for you. I'm, I think it's, you know, it's healthy. It's rejuvenating. Okay? We know that. We know the facts. We know the, we know the history. We know all the medical information, all that. But people still smoke for whatever reason. We know that drinking and driving is deadly a lot of the time. But people still drink. And drive. Okay. We know that a sedentary lifestyle is bad for you, for your health. And I'm talking to myself here. But we sure like that couch. Okay. We enjoy sitting on it. Okay. It's possible to know the facts about Jesus. It's possible to interpret his parables perhaps correct and, and believe them, to, to read someone's interpretation and say, yeah, and I see what's going on there. And then not to apply them. Not to live them out. We know we've been told to go and share our faith. And yet, how many of us actually do it? That's a command from our God, from our King. Go and make disciples. Yeah, we don't do it. And so as we look at this text today, as we look at the parables, as we look at Jesus' life here in brief, obviously first ask God for understanding. God, help me to understand what's going on here. But secondly, and I would say in some ways more importantly, God, help me to respond to what I understand. Help me to live out what I see as present. Help me to apply that to my life. So let's dig just a little bit more into the parables. 
The first thing we need to realize is that the primary point of parables is to explain the kingdom. That, that's why Jesus is, that's, that's the heart of the message. Okay, the kingdom. That's why there's the insiders, there's the outsiders. A kingdom has borders. A kingdom has, you know, citizens. And so his whole explanation of to conceal and to reveal and all those other things, it goes to what? It goes to citizenship. And he's talking about the kingdom. And, and he, he tells us several different things about the kingdom. The first thing he tells us about the kingdom is, what is the nature? What's the character of the kingdom? The kingdom that he rules over. What is its character? And you see this in, in the parables, uh, the ones that he went right into here in chapter 13. The parable of the, the mustard seed. It tells us that what? The kingdom is capable of supernatural growth. Doing things that boggle the mind. We're going through Acts in uh, the, the college Sunday school. And, and we're just in the first couple of chapters. And it just, it just amazes me when we read that 3,000 were added to it. 5,000 were added to their number. I'm just like, wow, what a day. What a day. You preach a message, 5,000 people respond. Okay. Imagine getting all those visitors, or those, those cards, membership cards. That'd be a lot of work. Okay. That's the kingdom. And I think too often we sell the kingdom short. The kingdom of God is not dependent upon who's in power. The kingdom of God is not dependent upon the, the country you live in. The kingdom of God is not dependent upon any of the things that we so often link it to. The kingdom of God is capable of supernatural transformation that comes what? From God's investment, God's work, the Holy Spirit transforming power in the lives of people. I think if we could just honestly, truly catch a glimpse of that, then so many of the things that we prioritize, so many of the things that, that we try and do as a church, as individuals, as in, our, in our lives out there, in our lives in here, we'd leave those things behind. Because we would see where the power of the kingdom really resides. And it's not in me or my efforts. But I get a chance to be a part of it. I get invited. Okay. You know, there, there's, there's, there's two kinds of jobs we do. There's the jobs we do because we have to. And then there's the jobs we do because we love to. Okay. And the outcome, you know, is, is evident of which job that is for us. Quite often, you know, um, when we understand that discipleship and making disciples and being a part of the church is something we get to do, and it becomes something we love to do, that's going to make a difference in us actually doing it. Then you have the parable of the leaven, where usually leaven is a negative 
image in the Bible, but Jesus uses it here as a positive. It says that what? That growth of the kingdom is inevitable. When it takes hold, it's going to start to spread. When it gets a hold of your heart, when it gets when it gets into your life, when it excites you, it's going to impact the people around you. It is inevitable in that way. Then the next parable, the parable of the hidden treasure, it's what? It's worth all we have. The kingdom's worth everything we have. Sell everything we have for the sake of the kingdom is, is a picture there. And then the pearl of great price, it's, it's worth all that we have, but... On top of that, it's distinct from all other treasures. There are things that we might have in our life that we say it's worth everything we have. You know, or marriage perhaps, hopefully. You know, other things that we encounter. But the kingdom's different even from all of those things. It's distinct and it's special even from those things. It is worth all we have and then some. So you have the, the parables that tell us the character of the kingdom. Secondly, you have parables that tell us the character of the king. Who is the ruler of this kingdom? And one of the things that we, we note quite often in the parables, is that God is a standard of behavior for those who are in the kingdom. He is the one that everything is compared to. The, the parables that I mentioned earlier, the, the coin, the, the sheep, and, and the, uh, the sun. God is set up there, what is the standard? His love is the, 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 what we weigh ourselves against. We don't weigh ourselves against each other or against the pagans or against others. We don't look and compare ourselves and say, oh, look, I'm doing at least I'm doing better than them. We compare ourselves to the king, the one who made us, the one who's in image. We are made. We see him as the one who, who loves, who forgives, the one who is the perfect judge. We see him as the ideal, even when he's not necessarily the central focus of the parable, he speaks loudly in each one of them. We see that he is the one who relates to us by grace, not works, in the parable of the workers in the vineyard, where he tells, where he hires some at the beginning of the day, and, and throughout the day he hires different individuals, and at the end he pays them all the same. Why? Because our relationship to him is not built upon our works, it's built upon his grace. And what he gives us is enough. And so we see the, the king who rules, who, who reigns, who, who lives. And then we also see the character of the king's subjects. That would be us, those who are participants in the kingdom. We see the, the call to Love people like we are loved. To love people more than we love the material. The three stories we mentioned. To, to love our neighbors, regardless of who our neighbor is. And sometimes that neighbor is someone we didn't expect it to be. The parable of a good Samaritan. 
We see the, the call, the challenge to persevere, even when it seems like the answer is continually no in the, the parable of the persistent widow. Despite all the odds, despite all the things we face, we are called to persevere. We are called to overcome. And so Jesus tells these parables to, to reflect these aspects of the kingdom, to, to invite us and, to, and, and those who to hear and, and who respond and who, who are part of this, we identify with it. Those who are not struggle with the images. Because ultimately we discover that the kingdom that Christ proclaims is a kingdom that's upside down from the kingdom that the world lives in. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. He who wants to gain his life must lose it. That doesn't make sense. That's foolishness to the world. But to those who are part of the kingdom, it makes perfect sense, just as the parables do. But as we would expect and, and as we would hope, Jesus' words are not the only thing we have to go by. We have his actions. We have his life. These two reveal his nature, his his belonging, his presence. For this, I again, there's so many passages I could look at here, but as we prepare for, for Easter, as we prepare for the upcoming Sundays uh, ahead of us, I wanted to look at John 18. It's an exchange between Jesus and Pilate that reflects the heart of, uh, again, the kingdom and the nature of the kingdom. And again, I left it pretty small for you, so you might want to have your Bible uh, there uh, for that. I'll, I'll learn eventually to, to make those bigger. Uh, but John 18, Jesus is on trial before Pilate. And we pick up uh, in verse 33. It says, And Pilate went back to his headquarters and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Are you asking this on your own, or have others told you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied. Your own nation and chief priest handed you over to me. What have you done? Verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I would be, wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it were, my kingdom is not from here. You are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this, and I have come into this world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is truth? said Pilate. And after he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no grounds for charging him. You have a custom that I release one prisoner to you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a revolutionary. This exchange like so many exchanges, especially in the Gospel of John, are two people talking about things on two different levels. Pilate's talking on one level, and Jesus is on a whole nother, just as it was with the Samaritan woman, just as it was with the disciples over and over again. You see it here. Pilate starts with this, are you the king of the Jews? 
He starts with a political question. And, and it's a telling question because no person had held that title since Herod the Great. When Herod died, that, that title was not given to any of his children. It was not given to any other ruler or any other leader. So for basically over 30 years now, no one had held that title. And so when, when Pilate asks that, he's asking this political question. Luke tells us that this was a part of the Jews' original charge in 23.2. He says that they charged with Jesus with being the king of the Jews. So Pilate is saying, are you a claimant king challenging Rome? The answer is no. Are you the messianic king of Israel? The answer is yes. My kingdom is not of this world. And Jesus here, as he explains, he, he's, he's, clear, he's trying to clarify the nature of the kingdom. And, and this is a unique moment in many ways. And John, John does not like the word kingdom. Matthew uses the word kingdom 55 times. John uses it in three places. It's not a word that John really is in favor of. It's not a word that he really utilizes in terms of his revelation, his reflection. So when it's used, we ought to pay very close attention. And, and what Jesus says here in this, in this reality, in this exchange, is that you need to judge my kingdom's purpose by my disciples. It's a challenge to us. Although he's speaking to Pilate, these words that have carried over the centuries, these words that have resonated with Christians over the centuries, they're challenged us. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. What had happened just uh, a few hours before? John, one of the few who tells us that story, that as the, the servants come to, uh, to take Jesus away, G uh, Peter pulls out the sword, cuts off the guy's ear. John's one of the few who tells us that. Jesus says here, if my kingdom were of this nature, I would have let Peter go at it. I would have let him continue. But he did what? He rebuked Peter. That's not who we are. We do things differently. And so Jesus here, he proclaims uh, our goals and our efforts. He proclaims our nature and our essence in, in the very life he lived in and the consequences of his action, he's going to the cross. And he reflects to us that the cross is all of our journey. It's, it's what we're all called to. He also reflects upon the nature of the truth in verses 37 through 40. And, and I want you to, to note here that, you know, Pilate says, you do for yourself a some sort of kingdom, correct? And, and Jesus says, yes, my kingdom is the kingdom of truth. I came to unveil the truth. I came to reveal myself. I came to reveal God. I came to relate this reality. And in many senses, Jesus is now the judge in the exchange, not Pilate. 
their roles have now reversed. It started with Pilate judging Jesus in his future, his next steps, and now Jesus is judging Pilate. And Pilate asked the question, what is truth? And you notice Pilate doesn't wait for an answer. The exchange just stops there. It, 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 it's not, uh, he's not a person who, um, who's, who's going to want to dig di- deeper. He's not a person who can even comprehend it if he did. He is the epitome of what Jesus mentioned back with the parables, the ones who hear but do not understand. Jesus has just told him, I'm the truth. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand it. He doesn't see that. He doesn't wait for an answer because I don't believe he believed there was an answer. To be part of the kingdom is is to see, is to understand that the darkness does not comprehend the truth. And he's so confused, he's so troubled by this that he's actually willing to hand over one who is a clear threat to Rome in favor of one who's not. When he offers Barabbas, what's it say? Barabbas was a revolutionary. I'm going to give you someone who is actually guilty of the things that we're trying Jesus for in favor of Jesus. That's darkness. That's what it means to be on the outside, to, to have, have a mindset, to have a perspective to where you don't even see that you're sacrificing the best on the altar of sometimes the worst. Too often in our lives, we sell out to the things of this world at the cost of our relationship with God, not recognizing that the things of this world want nothing but our undoing. They want us hurt. They seem attractive. They seem fun. And in a moment, they probably are. There is a way that seems right to man. But its end is destruction. Jesus calls us through his parables, through his stories, through his life to see that. Over and over again, it returns to that theme. What is the kingdom worth to you? Are you really willing to sell all you have for the sake of the kingdom? Are you really willing to abandon all you know for the sake of the kingdom. And the answer to that question really comes down to, to one essential question. Who is your king? Who receives your allegiance? Now, we struggle with that whole idea of kingdom kings here in America. We, we fought so that we didn't have to call anybody king. 
But if your independence and your arrogance, your mindset leads you to fail to recognize Jesus, not just as a friend, not just as a Savior, but as King, then you let things get in the way of a relationship that is worth more than anything you'll ever encounter, anything you'll ever come across. Pilate brings Jesus out in chapter 19 one more time before the Jews. And he says, Makes a, make a choice. This is it. This is the moment. You have a choice to make. And their response was, we have no king but Caesar. And too often today, people sometimes sitting in pews and churches will respond with, we have no king but the USA. We have no king but money. We have no king but sex. We have no king but whatever it may be. You have a choice. How you've responded to that choice is evident by how you understand the parables and the character of the kingdom and your role there. Do you fit in to that kingdom? Do you fit into how Christ described his people and their connection? Is that you? And if not, it's because somewhere along the way you've declared something other than Jesus to be your king. You've let something else sit on that throne. It may be you yourself. But whatever it is, it's sitting in a position that rightly only belongs to one. And that's Jesus. And he calls you today to repent, to respond, to replace whatever it is that's there with the one that should be there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come today, God, I, I pray that you would just speak to our hearts. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who has come to understand, come to see that something's sitting on the throne of their life that's not you, that God, you would call them, you would draw them in your love, in your grace, in your goodness. God, I pray that those handcuffs, those things that are tying them down, keeping them from responding would fall to the wayside and they would respond to you in, in love and joy and come to experience the life you've called them to experience, the, the hope you've called them to understand. God, use this time for your glory. Whatever decisions need to be made here this, this morning, uniting with this church, committing to follow in service and ministry, repentance from, from sin, recommitment of life, whatever it is, Lord, you're, you're doing here. Lord, we pray that you would move in a, in a mighty way and that we would see something that's supernatural and unexplainable other than the work of your Spirit. 
move in our midst here, please. It's in Christ's name I pray.